Is this the summer of Putin's long march across Europe? Are the Chinese really sending spies to Hinkley Point? Why MI6 is sorry the UK's top jihadist PR man is heading for the slammer? Why did the UN troops ignore the cries of rape victims in South Sudan? And medals and flag-waving in Rio, the non-military tattoo. August and Russia. Putin has moved out of the Kremlin for his summer holidays, but his wars go on. He's based his bombers in Iran. He's threatened Ukraine about any incursion into Crimea. And just last week on this programme, the recent Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe said it was perfectly reasonable to contemplate Russian forces moving on Baltic states. NATO responds, but it is a wafer-thin effort. Let's talk to international commentator and former presenter of the BBC's The World Tonight, Robin Lustig, and to BFBS Defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Okay. Uh, Robin, not None of that introduction was an exaggeration, was it? No, it was not. And if you want something else to worry about, you could throw into the pot Mr Putin's recent meeting with the Turkish president, President Erdogan, a NATO mm. member, of course, but Mr Putin very keen to make it clear that he and Mr Erdogan might have a few interests in common. As so, well. Look, what's he doing? Is he, is he making hay while the Olympics are on? I think that's part of it. It's not only the Olympics, it's also the EU in meltdown after the British referendum. It's also the US obsessed with domestic politics in the middle of a presidential election campaign. What Mr. Putin, Mr. Putin loves doing most is saying to people, do not forget who I am, do not forget what Russia is. It's a great power, it has interests which it is determined to, to defend and which it has the power to defend in Syria, in Turkey, uh, in Ukraine, all of the places you've mentioned. Mr. Putin does not want to be forgotten. Christopher, how does NATO respond to this? It, it responds as an alliance inasmuch that it, it, it organises or strengthens exercises that were going to take place anyway. It adds to those exercises. It makes announcements which normally wouldn't be bothered to be making, such as extra troops at, at a certain part, especially looking at the area around the Baltic and the Baltic states. Um, there's the other side of it, um, and that is when you get, um, for example, the new British Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary getting in touch with Moscow, or not in Moscow in this case, because Mr Putin's off to his dacha, but getting up and saying, you know, how we hope to have better relations, etc. But this is the important thing. There is the immediate response, which we talk about all the time, and that's people going off, you know, on exercise to the, to the Baltic area and responses from the Secretary-General, and there is the realism, and that is that all these occasions, all these excitements are long-term, and in fact... They are long-term in as much that nobody... What do, you, what do you mean by that exactly? The long-term is that we haven't got a crisis which might end in bloodshed or might end in warfare, let's say, by the end of the summer or, or even next year. There's always that might. General Sheriff, you mentioned earlier, the former deputy, Sarkir, uh, he was saying it's, it's not wrong to anticipate that something like this happened because all the signs are. But we're back to something else, and that is you can mm. always make an, a, 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 an assessment of the capability of something, even the deployment of, of yep. military forces, but you can't actually work out the intention. And so NATO actually m sees long-term relations rather than short-term relations. Robin Lustig, how do you read, then, what the long-term intentions might be when they might, they're might they not clear? 
No, they're not clear. I don't think Mr. Putin wants a war. I don't think that would be in Russia's interests. I don't think the people of Russia want a war either. What he wants is to be regarded as an equal partner involved in global strategic decision-making in areas which he regards as absolutely essential to Russia's interests. He wants to make sure that NATO and the EU realise there are limits to what he's prepared to accept. Ukraine was a red line for him. Syria is another red line for him. He does not want it to be thought that as in the early days after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the West can have everything its own way. Those days are gone. So what do you make, Robin, of uh, Russia's positioning, uh, well, launching airstrikes from Iran now on Syria? Well, it's, it's another sign that Mr Putin's not going to turn his back on Syria. He has done what he set out to do in Syria. He has made sure that President Assad has not been overthrown. Mm. He and Iran are working very closely together. Russian bombers are still wreaking absolute havoc in Aleppo and elsewhere in order to make sure that rebel forces do not make further gains. And Christopher, uh, the Chinese have sent a top military figure to Syria themselves. Yeah, I, it's interesting. He's it's, it's, it's a, it's a sailor. An admiral. His name is Guan Yongfei. Guan Yongfei has been to see uh, Al Fai, who is the uh, Syrian defence minister. Now, although they've always backed that part of the Assad a lot, they've never actually got involved. But what's interesting about uh, Guan Yongfei, he runs something called the International Military Cooperation Group, and that's within the, the whole military, like the Ministry of Defence. Uh, he has access to, not control of, but access to, 2.3 million troops from which he could withdraw certain people for uh, overseas deployment. That's his role. For that sort of man to be sent to see the defence minister is, as the Chinese will probably say, interesting. Let's talk briefly about the Americans, Christopher. Um, the Americans got a problem. Uh, well, I think they have a problem, and that is everybody says, well, why isn't Obama doing something about it? But he can't do something about it because he's a lamed-up president. He is not a lamed-up president. Obama has never done anything about it, and I think we're at the limits of what the Americans are likely to do in Syria, and but not quite in Iraq, but in Syria mostly. Still to come, why the UN ignored rape victims and why Kim Jong-un's man is on the run. Are the Chinese putting spies into Anglo-China commercial deals? For example, the proposed new nuclear power station at Hinkley Point in Somerset. Well, earlier I spoke to Anthony Glees, who is Professor of Politics at Buckingham University and directs its Centre for Security and Intelligence Studies. Well, I think it's generally accepted the Chinese have hacked their way around the world and what they've attempted to do and done in the United Kingdom will be no exception. It is seen by the Chinese government as being in China's national interest to collect intelligence, to spy, chiefly through electronic means. And in the United Kingdom, China is extremely well placed to do that. I think many Chinese people would in their heart of hearts be surprised that there was even any question about this in the United Kingdom amongst those people who know a bit about espionage and particularly cyber espionage. It's cyber espionage that's the real issue here. And who is doing it for the Chinese and what are the priority targets? Well, I think the Chinese are doing it for themselves because we in the United Kingdom have given the Chinese access to our communication systems. Chinese company Huawei, based in Banbury, um, 
has a contract to deliver to BT all kinds of fiber optic cables, but also uh, software, computer software, to facilitate uh, communications within the United Kingdom. And undoubtedly, because of that link to BT, Huawei will also have an inroad into the communication systems within GCHQ, the government's communication center, top secret communication center in Cheltenham. Indeed, that is known about and accepted, which is why our Parliamentary Intelligence and Security Committee, the Oversight Committee, expressed grave concern about what Huawei was able to do in the United Kingdom. And they produced a report in 2013 which was highly critical of what Huawei had done, so critical that they insisted that GCHQ install personnel, 25 people in uh, Huawei, to try to ensure that nothing dodgy was going on. But of course, not only could they not do that, but the starting point is, it's why the Chinese were hired in the first place, why Huawei were hired. They are the world's masters, not just at constructing uh, cable systems and software, but also inserting into that software devices that allow the Chinese to hack. So, in a sense, it's all blindingly obvious. What is also the case is that Huawei itself was founded by somebody who had been an officer in the People's Liberation Army of China, and it is the People's Liberation Army who are effectively in charge of this kind of intelligence gathering. Their unit, 61398 in Shanghai, is the nerve center mm. of all of this. But also every Chinese person would understand that there is no such thing in China as a company that is free from the government uh, interfering with so what it does. what is it actually that China wants from us? What does it want to find out? And how much of a risk is that to our national security? I think there are two things that China wants to find out. And in a sense, both are serious risks to our national security. The first is that China is a communist country, and like all communist countries in the past and uh, today, it seeks to gain intelligence. That is to say, our secrets, which it secretly attempts and wishes to exploit for its own purposes. Some of the things the Chinese regard as secret may not actually be things we regard as secret. They will hoover up all information because all communist intelligence agencies have done this in the past. They hoover it all up because one day they think it might come in useful. For example, the sewage system in London. There's stuff like that. The other thing, though, that, that the Chinese are very keen to do is to gain access to our strategic secrets. Now, these can be the latest design of weapons, uh, aircraft, uh, ships, this kind of thing, but also how they could control in the event of a serious crisis in relations, let's say over the South China Sea between China, the United States and, and the West, could actually control what our country's response to that could be. And that is where Hinkley Point 
and uh, a, the potential the Chinese government have to control the supply of our energy to our factories and to our industries. It all fits together logically in, in the Chinese mind. And how do you get the balance right, though, um, between those risks that you've outlined and the need by the UK economy to have Chinese investment? Well, the need to have Chinese investment, which has, of course, become even more critical after the decision to leave the European Union, is actually a kind of government uh, invented need. That is to say, it, it was a government policy, particularly associated with George Osborne. The Chinese were becoming very rich. Uh, it looked like a good thing to do to try and get some of that Chinese money and pump it in to the British economy. But you could Is do... it a mistake? I think it's a terrible mistake. It's a terrible mistake. And you only have to reverse the argument to understand. Would the Chinese government allow the British government and the British Secret Services access access to Chinese strategic assets or secrets or even Chinese communications? It's absurd to think that that could happen. That was Professor Anthony Gleaves from the University of Buckingham. Uh, Robin Lustig joins us today, the international commentator. Robin, um, do ministers always really understand the security implications of trade deals when they do them? I'm not sure that they do. I mean, I think Professor Glees makes a very good point. There was, in my view, certainly an over-enthusiasm uh, by the previous government to find anything at all that the Chinese would like to invest in. There are no other country that I can think of, developed country, that uh, would encourage the Chinese to invest in such crucial infrastructure projects as nuclear power stations. There must be lines to be drawn, I would have thought, where the security risks outweigh the investment advantages of going to some of the countries which have most cash available to invest and saying, hey, come and invest it here. I think they went too far. It may be that Theresa May is now having second thoughts. She does run the risk, as she is well aware, of really upsetting the Chinese mm. if she now goes back on that deal. Right, now let's move on to Anjum Chowdhury, described as the most dangerous promoter of Islamic domination in the United Kingdom, including a takeover of government. Intelligence agencies connect him with a pan-European terrorist cells. For 20 years, Chowdhury has been active in the UK, although most Muslim mosques have long banned him from speaking. Well, this week, for legal reasons, it was announced that he has been convicted under Section 12 of the Terrorism Act, that is, inciting support for IS. Uh, Robin, if his offences have been so obvious, why has it taken so long? It's a good question. He's a very clever man, is Mr Chowdhury. I remember interviewing him many, many years ago. Um, he was always... How did it go, Robin? Uh, I didn't take to him, I have to say. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, look, he was very, very good at knowing exactly where the line was between what the law allowed him to say and what the law did not allow him to say. And as all um, political orators know, there is what's known as the dog whistle tactic. You can say something which on the surface looks as if it's acceptable, but which carries beneath it a second message which is intelligible only to a certain group of people. What Anjum Chowdhury said might have been for many, many years within the law, mm. but the effect of what he said on the people whom he was trying to influence was often very, I guess, very dangerous. I guess a very tricky person to interview and very get it right. Very tricky indeed. I suppose the irony also, though, that he was not tolerated by mosques, but tolerated in public speaking. 
Well, it, it's an odd thing. I mean, there was a time, certainly, when I think the British media regarded him as a, a, a voice of Islamism, a voice of the jihadi extreme. And if you wanted to hear somebody expound those views, then he was the man you went to. And it enormously upset most other Muslim spokespeople because they knew what, an, what a fringe character he was, how he did not Was, was the media Muslims. wrong, then, to go to him? Ah, it's a very difficult one. I mean, I personally think there is sometimes good reason to say to somebody, look, here is a view which we certainly don't accept, which we certainly don't agree with. It's a view to which some people subscribe, and you, the general public, have a right to hear that view expressed. Mm. If it's an incitement to violence, if it's an incitement to racial hatred, then clearly it infringes the law. If it's an incitement to terrorism, it infringes the law. What Anjum Chowdhury did so successfully for many years was stay just the right side of that line. Christopher, how will MI Six be reacting to his conviction. Just, just, just one thing. I went to about, I went to about what half a dozen meetings of Chowdhury's, uh, pavement meetings, and felt very vulnerable. There was a whole sense of uh, the tensions at these meetings. It's not just what was said, but the other people who were there, mm -hmm. and everybody looking around. His acolytes, for example, looking around, see who was there, who were the people, anybody they recognised. I can't imagine you standing there, Christopher. Somehow he thought I was selling cigarettes. Listen, the the important thing about MI6, MI5, and GCHQ um, is that he is a source of intelligence gathering. Because uh, who is he talking to? You can find out to some extent. So who his it, acolytes were, even in the crowd scenes, I remember, uh, always having someone at the crowd scene to pick up different people. Who is closest to him? Who is also there? Who has only turned up for the first time? Do you know who that is? What do we have on that? What does that confirm that we didn't know before? And also the extended influences that when you consider that his fingers have stretched across Europe, in probably into about 12 different areas which are linked with terrorism, but he hasn't been directly involved with it. That is a, a marvellous intelligence mm. source for, for new people, people who will follow. And when you look back at the 9-11 intelligence gathering analysis, it is exactly that sort of intelligence, especially in Hamburg, places like that, not in the United States, but places like that and in London that you want to keep tapped into. Now, last week we were reporting the Taliban were on the move towards Lashkar. What do we know at the moment, Christopher? Well, it, I think we're into sieges. Um, what, in, in this sort of warfare, um, as in the most war, you, you don't have great deciders that certainly spring up. You don't say, right, here come Taliban, for example, and they've got this weaponry and they can take out something or they can take, uh, and they can cause people on the run. I think we're into the f uh, siege now. And more importantly, uh, into the siege produces the tens of thousands of refugees, displaced persons that start mm. moving first into uh, Lashka because that's supposed to be safe, then out from Lashka mm. because they don't know where to go because it's being pounded. Robin Lustig, in Iraq, the seizure for Mosul has still not taken place back from Islamic State, so-called Islamic State, although towns in the area south of the city are, are being reclaimed by the Iraqis. It does 
take a long time, doesn't it? And one of the problems is that we keep being promised that progress is being made, and it is extraordinarily slow. There is no doubt that over the past several months, um, the Islamic State group has been losing territory mile by mile. But it's not an easy thing to do. Holding the territory is not easy to do. It's going to be messy. It's going to take a long time. And, of course, there is the other risk, which is that the more territory they lose on the ground in Iraq and Syria, the more likely it is that they will turn their attention to targets in Europe and uh, elsewhere. Watch the Kurds, because they are taking part in a lot of these attacks and they want recognition. And recognition, it means they want territory of their Mm. own. Well, don't forget you can download this programme as a podcast and listen whenever you like. Uh, Use the podcast app on your smartphone and subscribe to BFBS SITREP. Now, the UN Secretary-General has ordered an inquiry after international humanitarian workers were attacked in South Sudan. Ban Ki-moon wants to know why thousands of UN peacekeeping troops based just minutes away failed to respond to urgent calls for help. Several aid workers were raped, most were robbed and some were beaten by scores of South Sudanese government troops in Juba last week. Well, around 300 British troops are due to join the UN peacekeeping force in the country later this year. Earlier I spoke to the former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark. I asked him what the rules are for UN forces and whether they could have intervened. Well, the rules vary in, in every case. They're all given separate rules of engagement and almost always they say, well, you're allowed to... Uh, to go into lethal mode if, of course, if you're attacked yourself. Um, But what constitutes a security breach will always be different in every case. But undoubtedly, following the Srebrenica massacre in in Bosnia, where Dutch peacekeepers felt that they could not intervene in what turned out to be a massacre of 8,000 or more people, um, the the rules almost always stipulate that um, if uh, a, a group has run amok, you can do something about it. Now, in this case, it may not have been clear from the appeals that were being made by the journalists exactly what the problem was. I mean, we don't really know enough about it. But it does look as if the at least three uh, battalion-sized groups in Juba from various different countries in China and Ethiopia and Nepal are accused of saying we can't do anything, which does sound astonishing. And why do you think they said that? Well, I mean, there are some good reasons. If they said we're not sure about the situation or we need instructions from our home base, not just our UN commander, that shouldn't happen, but it often does. And also we know that there were a lot of roadblocks, that a lot of the rebel groups have been setting up roadblocks to make it difficult for UN peacekeepers to move around. And remember, too, that the UN headquarters in Juba was attacked on the 11th of July, so they themselves are are, under great pressure. So I think that there there was a sort of mindset of saying unless we receive much more explicit orders from our chiefs that we cannot just respond to an appeal from journalists that something terrible is happening down the road. I suspect that that was what was at the base of it. You mentioned that the failure of the UN peacekeepers in Srebrenica, also we have the case in Rwanda in 1994. You do end up wondering what is the point of having UN peacekeepers if they can't keep the peace? Yes. Uh, I mean, all this goes back to the Congo um, in the 1960s. If you remember then, uh, you won't remember, Kate, but (laughs) (laughs) at that time, just a schoolboy. But in in 1960 to 64, in the Congo crisis, there was a similar situation in South Sudan, a rebel group claiming uh, to split the new um, uh, Congo up. And um, the UN invaded. They actually set up a, a, a war and invaded the rebel territory. And it all went terribly, terribly wrong. And it brought the UN to the verge of real bankruptcy and until that time the UN had been quite authoritative and it behaved a bit like a state saying we represent the law and we'll use military force if we need to. Mm. They're all been terribly wrong and since then the UN has always said we can only do what our members let us do 
And in reality, there is this sense that although there are 61 nations contributing to this 12,500 force, the numbers from every given nation are so small, there is a, there is a sort of mindset of constraint rather than a mindset of can do and let's get on with it. British forces will be deployed to South Sudan though, won't they? They will be. The, um, the, the, the news we have so far, a, a, a resolution went through the United Nations prompted by the, the United States a couple of days ago calling for 4,000 more peacekeepers to add to the 12,500 who were already there. And if we send 300, that seems to be the figure that's being mentioned, that's a, that's a significant enough number to be able to operate as a coherent force. And in this situation, they really could make quite a difference. It's not a big force. But certainly as opposed to a, you know, a dozen advisors or a medical team or an engineering team, which many countries send to these operations, a force of 300 is organically large enough to look after itself and to actually could have prevented this sort of thing. Do you think it is likely that British troops may get into the kind of situation that we saw only recently? And do you think they would act differently if they were asked to protect civilians? Whether they'll get into these situations rather depends on what happens next. But the, the news is not good from South Sudan. The place is, is sinking now into civil war. Um, the rebel leader seems to have left the country before he was arrested. The, the, the war is becoming sectarian now between the two tribes, the Dinka and the, the Nver. And so I think it's going to be a nasty situation. Will they be required to act? I suspect that they will. And certainly I think there is a mood um, in the British military now, partly post-Brexit, to prove that we do still count for something. And if we, say, we, if we say we're deploying military forces, they are military forces and they will do a military job as required. That was Professor Michael Clark. It's been reported that Tae Yong-ho, a North Korean diplomat in London, has defected. Why he's gone and where he has gone is not certain, but it does raise issues important to British intelligence. Robin Lustig, why do people like him defect? All sorts of reasons, hmm. I think, if one looks back at defections over the decades. It could be personal, it could be financial, it could be political. Most likely it's a combination of all three. Whatever it is, he clearly had had enough. He was prepared to take the enormous risk, both hmm. for himself and for his family, of defecting. I mean, when somebody of his seniority defects, in effect, to the enemy then he is putting his own life and the lives of his family at risk. He how knows do, that. How does he fit in with North Korea's defection record this year? I'm not an expert on North Korean defections. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a senior man, I'm told, mm. and uh, that obviously is of grave concern to the North Koreans. It's a great coup for its neighbours. I mean, whether he's gone to South Korea or not, it will be the South Koreans who are most interested. The Chinese will also be interested as well, because both of North Korea's neighbours need to know mm. what's going on inside that country and how real is the risk of it somehow imploding. What, 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 kind of, what kind of deal do they work out when they defect? Oh, well, I mean, the first thing he needs is protection, obviously. He needs a new identity. He needs some kind of security. He probably needs some money. He needs a guarantee that he and his family will be as safe as it is possible to make them. He hopes to be able to start a new life. In many cases, of course, those hopes are Why are you laughing, Christopher? Sounds like any pensioner. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. Of course, the penalties of defection are often tragedies, aren't they, Robin? Yes, that, that's the risk that he runs, and he knows it full well. A lot of defectors do not have great life expectancy. He must have been pushed absolutely to the limit. It could simply be that he got fed up lying for his country. Mm. It's sometimes as simple as that. Robin Lustig, as ever, it's been good talking to you. Thank you for your Thank time you. today. Now, medals, marching and flag-waving. No, not this year's Edinburgh military tattoo, but a much larger demonstration of ranks of heroes and golden spoils, otherwise known as... 
the Olympic Games. Uh, Christopher, ever since the first Grecian Olympics, there's been a sense of uncompromising victory over the vanquished without the bloodshed. It's about national as well as individual triumph. Do you know, I've always seen the, 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 the Olympics or, or the great um, uh, sporting events rather like military events in as much it is the only place where uh, it is displayed, this great... Uh, national pride. It, well, it's national pride, but it's also the ability to do things on a grand scale. And then what happened in the 1930s with Germany... Uh, the Berlin Olympics. This was the triumph of, or supposed triumph of, of Hitler and Nazism, and the ranks were displayed as if it were a military occasion. And in some ways, there is this again, there's this sense of the medals go on these people, the Victor Lodorum, mm. etc. Et, et but um, if you look, for example, uh, at some of the people that in the past we've regarded as enemies, like China, um, Russia, where they have this huge uh, birthday parades of lots of military, lots of soldiers mm. in, for, in close formation. When you see the, the Olympics, the opening ceremonies, the closing ceremonies, and there they come along, 336 Brits with, 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 with Andy Murray in the front with a flag, it has that military precision about it. Do you it. think the medal table can ever sort of translate into a nation's um, willingness to be more bold militarily in any way? You know, does it bolster our kind of national pride in a way, makes us more daring? No, it just sounds more plimsolls. I mean, it, 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 um, let's get this right. Uh, it doesn't. I was being increase... fanciful, but I was just talking about a general mood of a country. No, I suppose. Well, all right. It doesn't increase your place in the world. What it does, it does something for your national identity at home, and that is the important thing. There are people who are noting names today about Olympians they've never heard of before, and they'll probably have forgotten them in four years' time. Well, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests, to Robin Lustig. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. We're back same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. The warring parties.